So yeah, that Tesla news. Yeah, so obviously there's some sort of an industry event going on at Nürburgring. Okay. Um, like sort of over the last, I think, two weeks. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's sort of been a big news story about Tesla recently is like, will they put down a time on Nürburgring or won't they? Um, and basically you can't just you can't just go there and put down a time. Uh, as, as we spoke about last week, I think. Um, but they've there's been all the videos coming out of the Tesla, uh, like the new, what they're calling Plaid prototype. Yeah, something about the around. drivetrain. Yeah, like the drivetrain was slightly changed. Uh, the air intakes were slightly changed. Uh, basically, it was just, it's another performance um, update. Yeah. But the there were rumors coming out that the Tesla had put down a better time, but there's nothing official just yet on that. Is that okay? Like no, nothing official nothing has come official, out. Right. Okay. So all the ones yeah. are just, yeah. Cause I think the unofficial yeah. times are like 19 seconds or something. Yeah. Like somewhere like seven minutes and 19 or seven minutes and 20 yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Whereas, uh, the Porsche did like seven minutes and 40. Yeah. Um, but then we got to yesterday or it was, it was Friday, uh, and the Tesla that was there broke down on (laughs) on the track, which I mean, like, like shit happens. Um, but like immediately there were videos of the Porsche Taycan driving past the the Tesla that had broken down on the side of the track. (laughs) <laughs> and like, I don't think there's many spots on the track that there's these cameras set up. Wait, was there like an a... actual photo that wasn't Photoshop that had that? Yeah, yeah, there's video. Oh of it. wow, um, that's great. And like, there's yeah, there's not many spots on the track where there's like cameras set up. I and mean, it's a 13 mile track; they can't have every bit of it covered. Um, but it just happened to break down in front of one of these cameras. <laughs> and then, like, there's a video of, like, the um, Porsche driving by and then, like, the tow truck picking up the Tesla. I did see that one, yeah. Uh, it's too funny. And then, uh, like, the Tesla shorts <laughs> started going crazy, which is just, it's just funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did they I, say I, like, what was, did they say what happened? Um, I'll quickly skim this article. Um, um, No, it doesn't say anything. Mm. I mean, like, it's it's fairly uh, common. These are, like, prototype cards, and they're being pushed sort of close to the, uh, like, close to the limits, and, like, things are going to happen. So, um, I think, basically, what... What I guess um, you have to take out of this is that the there's really not a huge case against Tesla that hasn't already been made. Really, the, the biggest case against Tesla at this point is that they may not be viable if they make some bad decisions and run out of cash. Yeah. Uh, but if they make the right decisions and manage their cash correctly then they'll be fine and they have a great product and 
like it, it's going to go well for them. But they just have to sort of get over this sort of next probably two to three years as they ramp up their other production lines and get their distribution properly going around the world. Mm-hmm. And then if they if they survive that, then they'll they'll be all good. I just got the photo up then. Yeah. What are the it's chances? Quite, it's quite funny. Yeah. Uh, I, I woke up yesterday morning and the headline was uh, literally just like, Tesla Model S breaks down, Porsche take and drives by and Tesla shorts go crazy. Yeah, that's the exact one I'm on. It's on electric. Yeah. 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 And I get popped up like on my phone. Google just serves me up headlines, two <laughs> notifications from time to time. <laughs> and I guess the one that was yeah. up when I woke up. It's yeah. it great. Yeah. Well great done. stuff. <laughs> um, so Atlassian came back this week, which is great. It did. I was very happy good. about that. I am. I am in the in the green now, on oh, that good. position. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see uh, how that goes. My first position is still obviously in the red. Yep. Um, by about five percent, but my second position is up about ten percent at this point. So. Yep. So they cancel each other out. You pop net net green. Yep. So happy about that. For now, anyway. For now, I think um, my theory was kind of uh, sort of. I think it was right. Bang on. Yeah, I think it's been proved right, or at least seems to be indicating that way that these sorts of stocks, uh, so enterprise or enterprise software stocks, sorry, are being used somewhat as bond proxies or safe haven stocks. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say bond proxies because they don't react to. I don't know how they react to the interest rate movements, but mm-hmm. in terms of once the Saudi oil attacks happened, the money started shifting back into those stocks. Yeah, um, which is interesting. Like they're not they're not related to oil at all, but I think it's the fact that they're so removed from the physical world. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, their fundamentals shouldn't change too much. Um, so it, it's both a good and a bad thing. Obviously, if the wor- if sort of political tensions continue to uh, escalate, then you're going to see money flowing into those stocks. But it also means that it, when those tensions de-escalate, um, which is what you want anyway, um, you're going to see the, the money come out of those stocks again. Yeah, flow back into the value stocks. Yeah, back in back into sort of the stocks that are going to drive just more, more value and into the bigger companies as well. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, in a good balanced portfolio, you're going to want to, in general, see the world become sort of more calm and not go to war. Uh, yeah, exactly. So- like your portfolio shouldn't be betting on. End yeah. of the world kind of scenario. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you can bet on that. I just, like, I, I think it would be relatively difficult to bet on that without killing your diversification. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were purely betting on tech stocks, uh, like software stocks, then you could do it, but you'd have no diversification. So I think it would be hard to get diversification and bet on sort of 
geopolitical things going south. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I thought I'd just quickly uh, run through a couple news stories from the week. Yeah, sure. Um, so... First off, I think just after we recorded last week's episode, like it was a couple of hours after, the uh, sort of big oil field in Saudi Arabia was attacked. And obviously this has been analyzed to death in the media. Uh, but I didn't notice anyone really on, on YouTube or in the in sort of non-professional investing space talking about it. Um, in fact, well, that it was it, it, really big news. Like we had massive swings in. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's oil. Uh, like so. For context, Saudi Arabia at this point in time is one of the sort of most influential oil producers mm-hmm. in in the world. Um, they they don't produce. I think they produce about ten percent of the oils yeah, of global oil. Quoted, uh, but. They, I mean, that's that's not a small number by any means, but it's not a giant number. Uh, but Saudi Arabia sort of control OPEC policy. Mm-hmm. So for those who don't know, OPEC is the, I'm probably going to butcher this, but I'm pretty sure it's the organization of petroleum exporting countries. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially a Middle Eastern uh cartel of uh, oil producing countries and these days OPEC has been sort of replaced by OPEC plus which includes Russia okay Um, and Saudi Arabia and Russia are sort of the two countries who control that and the, the way OPEC effectively works is they set price targets for crude oil and then they adjust the production of of crude accordingly to to try and meet those uh, meet those levels because countries like Saudi Arabia and Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia and like those countries are almost completely dependent on oil. And I forget the person who who spoke about this there's, a, there's an economist who sort of theorized about uh about this effect i forget what it's called as well but effectively because oil is so profitable but also requires so much capital um, countries who are blessed by having a lot of oil sort of get very rich on the oil, but then they become very reliant on oil at the same time. Uh, And it's very hard to shift their economies away from oil. Mm. Obviously, Dubai did pretty well at getting away from oil by creating a a tourist hub. But uh, yeah, there's an effect that there, there was a famous economist that came up with an effect, and I forget what it was called. But effectively, once a an economy commits to making money off of oil in a big way, they need to sustain that. Uh, otherwise, they'll go into a, sort of a massive recession. And that's why something like OPEC arises. Um, and so when half of the country's oil output gets wiped out, it's a big deal. Um, so they and- were saying that, like, as soon as it happened, they were, they were saying that it was only going to take a couple of days to come back online. 
Yeah. So uh, there was, I mean, there was, there was a fair bit of, uh, like, um, I guess you could say fog of war. Like nobody really knew how bad the, the damage was going to be. Obviously when you attack oil refineries, there's significant fires mm-hmm. and, uh, and the, the cleanup and sort of making sure that everything's safe would have taken a fair few days. Um, and so we didn't really know what the extent of the damage was going to be. So there were estimates from anything from a few days up until uh, like several weeks. Um, but it seems now that it's been pushed out till the end of the year. Um and then the other thing, the other oh, side really? of the story. Yeah, I, I haven't followed it the past two days, I think. So I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. So it's they're thinking until the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think basically I'll I'll just loop back to the beginning of the week again. Basically, what happened was there were it was the middle of the night and there were explosions, and then. Uh, terrorist group or i wouldn't i don't i'm just want to preface this is like i'm probably going to be completely politically incorrect but effectively a terrorist slash rebel group in yemen claimed responsibility for the attacks um and the u.s came out and said that there's there's no reason to believe that the Houthi rebels would have been able to commit the attacks. Yeah, they call um, bullshit. Yeah, um, but there was no evidence of Iran being behind the attacks, but Iran was kind of like the obvious next choice. Yeah. Um, and basically, if you look at the map of the, the sort of Arabian Peninsula, Yemen is is right next to Saudi Arabia, and then obviously the uh, Iran's just across the sea. Mm-hmm. But the um, these oil fields are in the north of Saudi Arabia, and so it is actually closer to Iran than to Yemen. Um, and then I it think was, on, yeah, I was going to say like um, a lot of the reason was like just due to the sophistication of the strike, um, yeah, and how well they actually targeted the correct equipment, yeah, on the actual on the actual site and i seen again like i don't know <laughs> i don't know how valid the sources are that i look at on the internet um but one of the pictures um was showing the a cruise missile as opposed to um a potential yeah. drone strike yeah so this is what then happened at the towards the end of the week is i think on wednesday we got satellite imagery of the refining facility and you see sort of like the big, what look like tanks. Um, and there's a hole in each of them in exactly the same spot. Yeah. Which was like, it was like direct hits. And then I think on Thursday or Friday, they were, the Saudis put on it's effectively a press conference where they had the wreckage of the cruise missiles mm-hmm. or, or the missiles, I guess. And that all but confirmed that Iran was, if not the perpetrators of the attacks, definitely behind the attacks because they were Iranian missiles. 
Yeah. Um, and so it just makes sense that it, it most likely was Iran. Yeah. Uh, then the other side of the story was that Trump was tweeting up a storm. Oh, God. Yeah. And he was saying at the beginning of the week that locked and we're loaded. locked and loaded, ready to go. <laughs> He, I think his wording was like, we're ready to proceed based on what the kingdom wants, uh, which was odd because America doesn't wait for other people to make their decisions for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an odd posture to take. But yeah, he was saying he's locked and loaded and then it was effectively confirmed that Iran was behind the attacks. And he was like, we'll put some sanctions on Iran. Yeah. Um, which just... Like... I want to say that I don't think we should be going to war with Iran over oil. It just seems like a bad idea. Um, obviously, there are other issues with Iran, but I don't think we—I don't think war in general is the best idea. No. Um, but also, I don't think having the the president threatening war and then backing down. Uh, when it comes to actually it's making just, the decision is good either because it makes him look toothless. The world we live in now is just insane. Like yeah. the president threatening war over goddamn Twitter. Like, <laughs> oh God. Well, I mean, if you go back to the, the 1930s when Hitler was marching his troops into countries and the, the West was saying, hey, buddy, uh, stop. Or we're gonna we're gonna come and de- like declare war on you, and then he did it anyway. And they were like, "Stop! Don't do that again." And then eventually, like they had to because he invaded Poland. Um, and like I'm just I, the point I made to someone earlier this week was just, at what point is Trump going to make a decision that he can't back out of? Because it, this is the thing, is he, he can put sanctions on Iran, and if it turns out that the sanctions are unfair, he can walk them back. Once he sends troops into Iran, he can't walk that back without significant embarrassment. And so that's where his decision effectively came from. Um, because he was saying, oh, we're locked and loaded, ready to go. Uh, it's, like, it's, it's just frustrating watching, watching it be so weak. But Yeah. And you're I right think the, too, out, like, the outcome has been good. After watching all that stuff on the Vietnam War, like yeah. the majority of that, like the extension was due to uh, the president not wanting to embarrass himself. Yeah. Like they already knew it was a bad mistake sending them over there. But instead they actually, instead of, you know, walking them back or keeping them at uh, where they were, like in terms of numbers, they actually just increased numbers and continued the war. So, yeah. yeah, it'd be the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think we need a war, but um, it'll be interesting to watch what happens. I think oil started going up in price uh, over was, the weekend. It was pretty pretty close to what um, one of the traders on Twitter actually said who was following oil. Yeah. He said there'd be initial pop. It'd hold its price for uh, a couple of days and then it would sell off afterwards. Yeah, because uh, it, it it effectively sold off straight away. Yeah. Um, like it popped up to about $70 a barrel or seven, $72 a barrel, I think it hit. And then it came back down effectively 
almost by Wednesday it was back down at normal yeah. levels. Yeah. And it's it looks like it started going up a little bit on well, Friday, but not if, a huge amount. If if it is going to be the end of the year, you'd expect it to be like a slow sort of grind up. Yeah. I just wonder if maybe Trump would be maybe maybe investors are more sort of confident in Trump using the strategic petroleum reserves. Mm. Um I I also don't know what they think cuz I don't I haven't followed oil too much myself about yeah. the you know the extra capacity out there in the market like whether we can actually produce an additional 5%. Oh wait, hang on. They were um a bunch of in the uh, Gulf of Mexico there were a bunch of uh, platforms that were shut down recently. Um, so that may they may be able to bring those back online. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, Trump essentially came straight out and authorized use of the strategic petroleum reserves, which have like months worth of oil in in them. So maybe that's a factor. But yeah, it was a bit surprising to see it come back down so quickly. Yeah, um, talking about then, Trump. I was actually yeah. watching his uh, speech with our prime minister. Yeah, was over there, and they were, <clears throat> they were getting questions about obviously the China trade war and whatnot. And Trump mm-hmm. sort of started off by saying how they wanted a complete deal, not a partial deal. Yeah, and then sort of went into how he's rebuilt the military <laughs> and, and okay. how powerful. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> They're just talking about how powerful his military is. Uh, yeah. And well, I, mm-hmm. yeah, I was just going to say that complete deviation from the question now talking about military might. Yeah. Um, I read a book this week on Russia. Uh, it's like a fascinating book. It's very dense though. What was um, it? What was it about? It was about, uh, I mean, the title is The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's effectively looking at across sort of the last hundred years almost um, since, well, basically, yeah, the last hundred years since uh, the the Bolsheviks, uh, since the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 and examining how totalitarianism was set up in Russia during the Soviet era and then sort of the the fall of the Soviet Union and then how the reforms pushed all the way back to totalitarianism again under Putin Mm -hmm. Um, and was using sociological studies uh, from there's a prominent sociological center in uh, in Moscow and it was using the studies from there to examine why it went back that way. And it was it was quite an interesting look at how uh, a modern totalitarian regime works. Uh, and I think, I, don't, I wouldn't brand America as a totalitarian regime, but they certainly have a lot of the elements. Um, the the one thing that sort of was was quite interesting and it came out towards the end of the book was that totalitarian regimes will 
keep a period of unrest or keep keep the nation basically in unrest all the time and instability so that people feel they have to look to the government uh, for the stability um, and so the government creates it creates problems effectively that they that they can then solve um, i mean you can and, definitely see that with aspects of trump's presidency yeah and the bigger thing that sort of put like came out to me this week was well i mean someone someone i think i saw it on twitter where they've banned vaping uh or they they've i think the fda banned it banned sales of vaping uh like the canisters and all right because it's been linked to i think five deaths whereas they can't ban guns which what have about been cigarettes or guns is I a know, big one. I know guns, but like cigarettes <laughs> like, yeah, is the direct cigarettes. Like how many that skilled, but yeah, guns yeah. definitely. But yeah, the, the sort of parallel I was drawing was that the guns create instability. And while there's that instability, there's a need for the government because only the government can do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to come out and start making like big, <laughs> big claims that... But it is definitely a factor. Um, and there's so like also... One of the things that Putin did was in, I think, 2016, he just sent people to dig up all the pavements in Moscow one night. Really? Yeah. They just dug up all the pavements and just to disrupt people's lives. Yeah. And then they went and fixed the pavements. Well, you look at Trump, like he... He can only do a couple of things by himself, but like the the tariffs. Yeah. He puts them on, he takes them off. Yeah. And the it's tariffs, like, I can, solve, the... I can solve your problems by taking them off. Yeah. He create, he's created the China to. problem, basically. Yeah. Um, and then at the beginning of his presidency, there was all the migration bans. Yes. Um, wow. which caused, like, significant riots and stuff. Well, not riots, but demonstrations and things. Well, the ones uh, from the Middle Eastern countries that he banned, that was there was some serious protests in the... Uh, in the airports. In the airports, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it was it was interesting. Uh, I sort of... Any way you look at it, it was, it was definitely interesting. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it, it was an interesting book... Um, it was, I mean, go and re- like people can go and read it if they want to, um, but it, it was fairly dense, and I think you'd have to have a fairly good understanding of Russian history, like uh, uh, Russian history in the 20th century, uh, to sort of follow it, because they just start dropping names and events and stuff, and unless you know what was going on, you'd struggle a bit, or you'd have to go to Google a fair bit. Yeah. I mean, I had to go to Google a fair bit towards the end of the book because I'm not that up on Russia in the last 20 years, but um, I have studied Russia in the 20th century, so I was, I was fairly comfortable with that, that stuff. So then the, other, the last thing, I, oh, I wanted to mention that the Fed cut rates in the US. Um, yes, 25 and, basis points. Yeah, only 25, and I think people are a little bit surprised that they only did 25 yeah um but i think it's it's possible that 
Powell felt Powell felt that they um, they couldn't do any more because it would look like they're giving in to Trump. Yeah, possibly. I did. I did watch the actual uh, talk he gave. Yeah. After it, um, I think it's. I think it's good that they're definitely doing it as an insurance policy. But yeah, like you said, straight after it, Trump comes out and said, you know, it basically no guts to yeah. to Powell. So I saw some other people uh, this week commenting on it that um, supposedly uh, uh, qualified investors and want to teach other people how to invest, but they thought that Trump was asking. Uh, Powell to raise rates, and that's why he was upset. I'm like, well, what? I'm, uh, that doesn't yeah, make sense. I know. Um, you probably know who I'm talking about. Probably. Um, but yeah, um, I think tr- Trump wanted more. Um, I don't know if, if it we were, need if we're up more. to Trump, he'd be putting it down at zero, and we'd be letting things fly, and things yeah. be going off the rails. Yeah. Um, so. I think they did say that they were going to start asset purchases as well. Okay. They said about thirty million dollars starting in November. Mm-hmm. Well, is no, no. I think that was the ECB. Sorry, I think we're getting too confused. All right. Yeah, that was the ECB. Um, and yeah, the last thing I just wanted to say before we get into sort of the main discussion today was, um, do you know Pocket Cast, the podcast app? No, I don't. Um, so it's quite a popular podcast app, like sort of generally regarded as the best one um and it's been around for about 10 years mm-hmm. and has um it costs about four bucks uh on all the different app stores yeah um and this week they decided to go to a freemium model so the app is free and then you can buy like a premium tier subscription for a dollar a month um, but the other side of it was that there is a desktop version, which is why a lot of people like Pocket Cast because you can log on on your desktop, like in a browser. And I think there's actually a, a desktop app as well, and it syncs everything across. So you can be listening to a podcast on your phone um, and like on your way to work, and then log on at work and. Uh, go on Pocket Cast on there and it syncs where you're up to straight away. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, which is really good. Um, but that was sort of a... I think it costs like 10 bucks, like a one-off, just $10 payment. Um, and like I bought it years ago. Um, and then on Thursday, I think, Pocket Cast came out and they made the app free and then they had a premium tier which gave you access to the desktop version. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- the Pocket Cast user base went nuts and was so mad um, about this because it's effectively like... Well, they already paid. Yeah, they'd paid. And the wording on the payment page was like, we'll never have a freemium tier, no subscription, hoo-ha, like stuff like this. And then they changed it. And so what they did was they gave everyone who had previously bought the desktop version three years free of like the premium. Mm-hmm. Um, but people like weren't happy and Reddit was going crazy. Twitter was going crazy. Um, <laughs> like it, it, was, it was pretty nuts. Yeah. 
Um, and there were people like, it was, it was quite funny to read Reddit that day. There's people who were like, oh, well, there'll be a class action lawsuit. Uh, da, 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 da. And I was like, buddy, you're not going to go and spend thousands of dollars on a lawyer <laughs> yeah, for a, to get a $10 refund or something. <laughs> I, um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't know. I was like, just the outrage just doesn't seem... It didn't seem like I I got it like on principle. Yes, you. But it's also it's ten bucks, and the subscription is a dollar a month, and you get three years of it for free. So yeah. they've kind of given you your ten dollars back anyway. But anyway, they eventually towards the end of the day they decided uh, to just give everyone who had already paid the like lifetime access, um, just to sort of quiet everyone down. Yeah. Because um, their like rating on the app store went down like a whole point during the day. Oh wow! Because <laughs> <laughs> people were just pissed off. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's it's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just something that that happened this week that entertained me. Um, so you have here um, biggest stock market miss that you want to talk about? Yeah. So um, I've got- Ten and I think them. we'll roll this into sort of something I put in, like beginner investing advice. Mm-hmm. Um, so like sort of what you would, uh, what advice you would give a beginner because like you've told me that you, you get questions from time to time from people. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And I do as well. Um, so I thought we would, we would just sort of go over this. Um, so do you want to start yeah, us I'll kick off? it off. Yeah, so the first one that... So these are just the standard ones that you'll find on the internet. That, yeah. Um, there is there is a portion of the community that still do believe uh, in these things. So uh, the biggest stock market myth, number one, is investing in stocks equates to gambling. Yeah. Um, and then the the alternative to this is like saying that the stock market is also too volatile to invest in. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the time I'll get comments from people, whether it be friends or family or whatever it is, saying that um, it's akin to gambling. Mm-hmm. But it, it depends on sort of how you're going about it and how well informed you are before going into investing or trading for that matter. Yeah. Um, so, I think whether or not you're gambling depends upon how much information you're acting on before sort of hitting that buy button or sell button. Yeah. Um, I think well, that there's a good way to think about this is that when you're gambling, say in a casino or in uh, like sports gambling, you're you are armed with all of the information that the likelihood is you're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And you can act on perfect information, but those odds are still stacked against you. With With investing, the more information you get, the more the odds get stacked in your favor. Um, So it's almost akin to card counting where if you are good at card counting and I mean, a lot of casinos guard against this now by keeping hidden decks and whatnot, but 
say you're you're playing in like a regular like two deck blackjack game and there's sort of no guards against it and you're card counting the more you card count the longer you card count into the game the more you can calculate the odds and the odds might not roll in your favor but you'll know when they do and so you can place bets that are more likely to come out in your in your favor mm. i think the stock market is similar to this in that you are the more information you act on the the better your chances are of succeeding um but i do think that for the retail investor the odds are significantly stacked against you from the get-go mm-hmm. um, so you do need to put in significant sort of research um, in order to uh, to get back that um, sort of the profit margin that all the other players are making off of you it's also I think the mindset that you go into it as well yeah most most people that initially get into it they'll sort of find themselves on maybe a Facebook page or uh, a forum. Yeah. And the most popular stocks on those Facebook pages and forums, um, in my experience, has been the the very speculative stocks. The yeah. ones that are probably under 100 mil in market cap. A lot of them are sub 20 mil in market cap. Yeah. Um, so they're very, very small companies. And, of course, these these companies have wild swings in price uh, one one good example of this i think it's called cad yeah. cad um its stock price i believe i'm not i haven't checked it recently but it was hovering around 0.1 cents so yeah. it's basically it's as low as you can possibly go mm-hmm. like you can't buy below 0.1 cents so people were trying to buy or trying to buy at 0.2 cents and then they're, they're thinking that they can either flip it for a quick profit or um, they're looking at the stock and its stock price in terms of how cheap it is rather than the market cap of the company and what it's actually, what it's actually doing. Yeah. So I think, I think mindset sort of going in for that quick buck um, will trip up a lot of people. And sort of lead them towards more gambling style activities, yeah. Then, then going out and doing the hard work and trying to actually search for that information that's gonna sort of skew the probabilities in their favor. Yeah, I think there's also a fair amount because of the. I think in the last probably twenty years, or even the last ten years, is being a little bit of a democratization of uh, the stock market and access to capital through the public markets for startups. And so you get a lot of sort of pre-revenue, not pre-revenue companies, but pre-profit companies who previously probably would have, it would have been more appropriate for them to go through more uh, sort of, funding rounds in the venture capital world before they went public but they are going public and i think that uh, that tends to be the popular startups uh think netflix uber like those sorts of companies 
so those are popular companies that your average Joe is going to think to go and look at. Uh, but it, basing on those sorts of companies takes a different skill set than basing on your sort of average public company because you're you're evaluating things that are beyond the scope of like the annual reports. You're evaluating industry trends and sort of the the future of technology and all these things that venture capitalists are supposed to be really good at. And that that's their specialty and why they exist. But it's not sort of what your average stock market investor does. And I think that's sort of a trap people can fall into. Mm, definitely. Yeah. So but then on, I guess the other thing, uh, your the other point that you had, the sub point was that the stock market is too volatile. Um, and I guess the, the answer to this really is quite simple in that you don't have to put all of your money or all of your investable money into the stock market. You can put it into bonds or you can hold it in cash and that smooths out the volatility of your portfolio. Um, so the way to think about this is, and this is uh, sort of part of Markowitz portfolio theory or modern portfolio theory, is that you have sort of your investment pool, which for each investor is going to be different. Uh, so you have your optimal like investment allocation or risky asset allocation, and then you have risk a risk-free asset that you can invest in. So the, the sort of general in in academic context, they say that the uh, the, the Fed ten-year rate is your risk-free rate, which is um, like it, it it requires a set of circumstances for that to be a risk-free rate. Um, more the more appropriate risk free rate for a retail investor would be like your average term deposit account uh, which is say in Australia right now it's probably two percent um so that's probably you can go and put money into a term deposit or into a savings account and earn interest on it, and that's your risk free account and then the stock market and the stocks that you choose is your risky asset account. And you can adjust your volatility based on uh, your allocation between the two. And, and there's also there's also the level of diversification that you have in just stocks in general. Yeah. Like I, I was trawling through a couple of uh, YouTube videos um, the past couple of days in sort of how many stocks one should own. And I was looking through the comments to see what people had said and how many stocks they'd actually owned. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were like sub five stocks and some people, you know, maybe one or two. So, yeah. I mean, an easy way is just to have more stocks in your portfolio. And that's obviously going to lower the size of that position relative to all the other ones and, and sort of smooth yeah. out that volatility. Yeah, and so this this also comes out of uh, modern portfolio theory. Um, the maths behind it isn't all that complicated. So if you if you do sort of want to go and look at the maths, you can uh, probably like a high school level of maths to understand it. Um, 
but essentially what we see is about as long as you're selecting a broad range of companies from different sectors that aren't fundamentally correlated mm-hmm. um, so if you go and select all oil companies this won't work but you need basically about 30 stocks and then you're pretty much fully diversified you diversify out most of most company risk now holding 30 stocks is relatively hard to do uh, when you're first starting out uh, you'd need a fair chunk of capital to make it worth it because if you think about uh, like most people are paying what 20 bucks or say 10 bucks uh, yeah like 10 bucks in brokerage um, so if you're if you buy 30 stocks you're like 300 bucks in the hole and if you then sell those 30 stocks again you have to take that into account like your the other side of your trade uh, so you're 600 bucks in the hole just to start out with if you buy 30 stocks um, mm-hmm. so you're going to want to look at investing like significant amounts of money so looking at much more than like twenty thousand dollars to make that sort of a reasonable investment uh give me Um, one second yeah i just knocked my coffee over (laughs) i think i maybe got some on the floor all right i'll fix it up all right all right good cool yeah so so yeah, uh, I would say the, the diversification you probably it's it's more difficult to attain for like the beginning investor, uh, just when you have less capital and the the time you would have to sink into buying thirty companies. Um, so just remember that there are the two sort of tools to getting rid of volatility: is one diversifying and then two portfolio allocation between risky and risk-free assets which is you can go and read uh investopedia will have information on modern portfolio theory Mm. yeah i mean that's that that sort of falls into the where is it number six is like you need a lot of money to actually get into stocks yeah. So if you're if you're going to be picking individual stocks and you want to be um, um, adequately diversified, then yeah, you're going to need a certain amount of money so you're not spending too much in brokerage, especially if you're act, you know actively investing. Yeah. Um, but there are I know we talked about this before with ETFs and such, but you can do other things other than sort of purchasing into individual stocks. You could just buy into um, a particular ETF that just sort of tracks the market. Yep. Um, now, like, I don't I don't think that the 8% quoted uh, annual rate of return for stocks is going to sort of continue into the future. Yeah. As I sort of look out now, but, like, just with the compound interest formula, if you put a thousand bucks in and you left it for 40 years, it turns into roughly 22 grand um, by the time you retire. Yeah. So there are other alternatives. That's at 8%. I don't think that's going to continue. 
Yeah. Uh, but that's the quoted, the quoted thing among people on uh, YouTube yeah. and such. I think so, that that's the long term average. It is. Um, look, the the long term average is slightly. Uh, well, I think when, when they say the average, I think most people look over the last hundred years. Yeah. people generally are saying over the last hundred years Um, and look it's difficult to to kind of um, talk about when when they look over the last hundred years you've got to understand that the world was a very different place a hundred years ago and also the stock market was a significantly different place um, so a hundred years ago, there were a lot more dividends being paid. Um, even up to the fifties, a lot more dividends were being paid and the stock price was less, uh, relevant when you, we got to sort of the, the 1970s, 1980s and corporate rating became popular. The stock price got more important. And so if you look at a graph of the S&P 500 um, and you you sort of look at as far back as you can, you notice like around the end of the 80s, you start to see an acceleration in in the stock price or in the the index. Um, And that there's there's obviously a huge number of factors that go into that. But one of the big ones is the fact that the stock price started becoming more important uh, mm-hmm. to the company. Um, and then the other, the other factor is that it's, there's a significant difficulty in determining what stock prices were 100 years ago because they wasn't really indexing. Um, we can make some guesses based on papers that people kept, but yeah, it's more difficult to determine uh, what stock prices actually were. Um, they were like in the during things like the Great Depression when the the crash happened. A lot of trading happened outside of the exchange as well. So, literally, people went out on the sidewalk outside the exchange and were trading shares between them. And then there were no sort of official records of that. You were holding share certificates and that was your record that you had shares. Mm. Um, And there are, essentially it was much more fluid back then. It was much more, uh, much easier almost to to fraudulently sell and buy and sell shares. Um, There's a famous, uh, I think it was Rockefeller, I think it was Rockefeller sold shares to to someone. I forget who it was. Um, it may have been Carnegie that he sold. Oh, Carnegie, I think, sold shares to Rockefeller. And what he did was he diluted shares, so he printed more shares, and he sells them to, to Rockefeller. And then when Rockefeller gets the shares, he notices that they're all newly printed. They're not old certificates that have been sort of... Yeah passed around and he like loses his, he loses his shit um so things like that are harder to document back then so yeah i agree with you that eight percent number is sort of it's a bit wishful thinking 
um, like especially given that the majority of stock markets were well, the biggest stock market in the world was the the U.S. and the U.S. has for the last hundred years gone through the most prosperous century that any country's ever seen, mm. and that just can't go on forever. So, yeah, exactly. And um, I guess I guess we'll go on the next one. the the next The next stock market myth is uh, one that people sort of fall into the trap of a little bit. And that's uh, fallen angels. Angels will go back up eventually. Yeah. Um, so, to me, uh, that sort of brings to mind Bellamy's in Australia, anyway. Yeah. And I mean, they just got bought out. Well, there was an I, offer I, I, th- that, that was, was accepted, offer. wasn't it? No, that was um, the the board suggested that they that they vote on it, but okay. A- anyway. Um, so, P- Bell at, at the height of its um, stock price was, tra- I think it was at a PE of 50 or so. Yeah. And as sort of growth starts to slow or even earnings decline, you're not only now pricing the company based on those lower earnings, but you're, base- you're pricing it based on the lower growth as well. Um. So you get a compression in the PE ratio. So instead of valuing the company at a PE of 50, which is extremely high um, for that type of stock, you're now valuing the company down at the sort of the market average. Um, And the only way that that fallen angel, which was a stock market darling of its time, would be to go back up to its previous heights would be to its earnings increased to a certain point where its current PE multiple um, achieves that stock price or it gets that level of growth again that justifies um, its previous PE multiple. Yeah. So I think if you're, you know, sort of averaging down into a position that's fundamentals are slowly degrading or... In this case, it wasn't really Bell's fundamentals that were slowly deteriorating. It was it was the sector itself. So if you're in a sector that's slowly deteriorating, um, and I've experienced this as well, um, you're you're going to you're going to be fighting a losing battle against the tide of money that's slowly selling out of that that sector. So I think it's it's wishful thinking to think that whatever stock you buy now, even if it's a good company, well, was seen as a good company in the past, is going to achieve the same heights that it did in its uh, in its stock price that it did before. Yeah. And I think there's definitely a, a level of, especially recently in the market, and we haven't been in the market as much, but when you read about the market in in older times, there didn't seem to be such like a favoritism in stocks that there there seems to be now, um, and I wonder if that um, if that sort of I mean obviously index index effects have been exemplified recently through passive investing, which is something that Michael Burry was talking about, and we spoke about I think on two two episodes ago. 
and so you get stocks that run up very quickly and you have these like market market darling stocks but you can't sort of separate that from the the fundamentals of the company and companies don't last forever we all know companies that have gone bust and just because there's a stock doesn't doesn't mean that there's any sort of need for it to to stay uh profitable and stay in business like it can just go out of business eventually yeah exactly if you've got a company that a competitor that does produces a better product well uh it's it's eventually going to win out yeah so there's no need for the household name to sort of continue running up yeah um I guess that sort of comes to the next one and sort of the flip of it is that stocks that go up must come down again. Um, now, I mean, you could look to stocks such as Apple to sort of see that, you know, once it hit its trillion dollar market cap, if you sort of were constantly waiting out for that stock to come down again, um, you would have been essentially left at the station. And, yeah, and I, f- I feel this with uh, um, potentially Atlassian. Yeah, there's no just because the stock comes like rises up, there's no need for it to come back down again. I think things that we are as retail investors, we aren't privy to. Obviously, information that the board is talking about. Yeah, um, and also our. Uh, Oh, what's the what's the word? I'm losing the word. Um, our analysis of the stock is not going to be as great as an institution either. Um, no. So you you don't know when that institution is going to stop buying that stock up because of the valuation that they've um, placed on it. Yeah. And you also don't know what's in store for the comp their company itself. Uh, you can't sort of just because the company is now in uh sort of in uh IT doesn't mean that they can't venture into some other business and be successful in it. I mean and Amazon's a prime example of that. Exactly. That that's what I sort of what I had in mind when I sort of started talking about this is you you don't know that they're going to move into heavily into shipping and that be like a massive component of their business and sort of start rivaling um FedEx and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think there's no need for a stock to go that that's gone up to come back down because there's going to be new innovations in that company and you don't know um the valuations that the buyers have placed on it. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Um well obviously stocks are when when stocks go up, I think there there is a tendency obviously if they're at a 52 week high, the the chances that they come back below that 52 week high at some point after that are relatively high or if they're at an all time high, it's even more. There's the chance of them coming back from that are higher than them going above that. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the chan- just because the chances are higher going like a higher doesn't, give any sort of indication of what the size of those moves might be so 
Now the chances are it's not going to keep closing at all time high every day forever. It's going to come back, but it might only come back 2% or 5% and then keep going up. Um, and again, this just comes down to really understanding. I think this is where I tend to agree with Benjamin Graham uh, in one of the first chapters of The Intelligent Investor, he talks about the this effect where we see that stocks become a symbol, like a ticker symbol, and it, it almost gets removed from the business. And he spoke about it in one way, and it's been... Uh, it's been changed over time to be very much about like sort of when people talk about this, they, they talk down on other people who trade or whatever. Like this, this comes from like the, the hardcore value investing crowd who talk about, oh, you shouldn't just view a stock as a symbol and like whatnot. Um, and then they won't look at any sort of technical analysis or anything. But I think that all of these things almost come down to just understanding everything you can about the stock and taking all information into account. And when we talk about, oh, stocks that go up must come down, well, you're taking one data point essentially into account there that the stock's been going up and it's now at a 52-week high or it's at a all-time high. And that's one data point. And you've got to take into account as many data points as you can and make a decision based on the complete situation of both the company and the stock. Um, and I do think that there's a, um, there's an argument to say that the company and the stock should be considered as one and the same thing. But there's also an argument to say that they are separate things and to consider them uh, separately. I've just um, posted something in the in the doc for you. Yeah. If you just scroll uh, down, Microsoft. Yeah. So the point the point that I want to make is that as a company grows, yes, there's going to be peaks and troughs and rallies and whatnot. But in order for a stock price to increase, you're going to want it to see it hit those fifty-two week highs. Yeah. And it's consistently going to hit those fifty-two week highs over time. It's not going to be every day. But a, a market leader is going to continue hitting those 52-week highs. Wow. Microsoft has increased 54 times. Yeah. That's, That's insane. On a, you look at the graph and it's a logarithmic scale. Yeah. yeah. It's a straight line pretty much. But um, yeah, you can see each, each little data point there, that little dot is a 52-week high that it's hit. Wow. Yeah. So just, I think, I think, you need to sort of gauge where the overall market is, but I, I wouldn't be scared in buying a new 52-week high. Yeah. But again, it comes down to sort of what type of investor you are. Like you have, this is this is from a trader, that that uh, that Microsoft graph. But if you look at um, an investor like Michael Burry, he, he would look at stocks that were beaten down in the lowest um, he'd sort of trawl through the 52-week lows list. Um, now, that's a lot more dangerous than, than buying a market leader. But it just depends on sort of what type of investor or trader you are. 
Well, again, there, there's different types of market risk. Um, like just there's a certain type of risk that's built into buying at 52-week lows. And that risk is that you're buying companies that have deteriorated uh, and that you you maybe not seeing where they're deteriorating and other people are seeing it. Um, and But on the other side of that, buying stocks that are at 52-week highs or all-time highs, you uh, your risk is that it's be it's an overhyped stock that has been on a run and that's going to come down. So you've got two different risks built in there. Yeah. And the, yeah. I was going to say the other risk as well is uh is to do with the pressure of the the money sitting above you. So like say for example with Afterpay um as it hits new 52 week highs there's no there's no buyers above that level that have been trapped that are trying to get out of that stock yeah and you'll see in certain areas of the chart where it first say ran up to 23 and peaked and then ran all the way back down to 12 when it tried to push through that 23 level again to try and hit that new 52 week high there was a lot of volume that was going into that stock yeah and that was because of all the trap buyers that had bought at the previous peak and now saying, it's just a psychological component of it. And now saying, I just want to get out for break even. Yeah. Like I'm happy with break even. That's fine. Yeah. Whereas with those ones that are hitting those 52 week highs, you don't have those trap buyers above you and you have more momentum behind you and less selling pressure. Um, yeah. So that's another thing to consider as well. When you're buying those 52 week lows, know that you're going to have, well, just through the nature of it, because you're at a 52-week low, there's, or even at an all-time low, <laughs> like yeah. everyone everyone is at currently at a loss. Yeah. So you can sort of gauge how much, how much selling pressure there's going to be as people try to try and get out of the stock for, for break-even. Yeah, and I guess that's um, your... That's again, it's just more more information, synthesizing all the information, taking it all into account and making a decision. Yep. And this is where I feel uncomfortable when you start looking at trading, uh, trading systems or investing systems or strategies that give you a checklist yep. and say, look at these things and you want to see these characteristics um, which is it that it's helpful in some contexts, but it's also you're physically limiting yourself to so only looking at certain types of information that's on the checklist. Um, and I think that just a good investing practice and what I, I try to write about on my blog is just to get as much information as possible and to use that information to synthesize uh opinions on stocks and the more information you have the like if you if you read uh academic work they always have literature reviews where they look at what previous people have done and said and then they write like they what they've uh experiments or study or whatever they've done as it sits within the body of literature um and stock 
investing shouldn't really be any different than that. It should be you're looking at every, all the information out there. So all the like um, sort of technical and absolute information, you're looking through all the other opinions on it as well. And you're then coming to an opinion yourself based on everything. And the more information you get, the higher quality your opinion is going to be. Because, like, I mean, very realistically, if you have all the information, you are going to make the correct decision. Like, if you if you were able to get all the information about all the order flow and how everyone else is thinking and what their algorithms are going to do and all of that, you would make the perfect decision every time. So the closer you get to that, the better, I, I reckon. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just a... It's, it's like how I like to analyze things. You've got to look at um, both the zero point where you have no information and you're essentially gambling and the infinity point where you have all the information and you can make a make a make the perfect decision. So obviously, as you trend towards either end, you're going to be more towards gambling or more towards the, the perfect um, entry and decision in a particular stock. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- so your next point, I think that that sort of rolls into your next point there, uh, which was that you a little knowledge is better than no knowledge. Um, so what was your thinking when you put this point on there? Yeah, so I guess I guess it's just like what I was just saying then. If you're acting on no information, then as you trend towards infinity where you have all information, um the probability of you making a better decision should, should in effect go up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess <laughs> if, if you have no information, I, I don't exactly know what you'd be doing. Um, but essentially the more you have, the better you're able to skew it in your favor of um, making the correct decision. Yeah, I guess there's there's sort of two things here. There's information. So I guess what you would count as data points about a stock or an investment. Um, and then there's knowledge. And there's, there's knowledge of how to interpret information and insert it into the body of knowledge and the body of data points that you collect. Yeah, good point. Um, and I think that there, there's an, this is one of those odd things. and What is it? Um, there's that graph that you get where someone who knows a little bit thinks they know a lot. Um, and then you get as someone starts to learn more and more about a topic, the less confident they are that they know a lot about the topic because they know just how much there is to learn. Um, uh, so I think that, again, this comes back to what I always talk about is getting a breadth and depth of information and knowledge uh, that not necessarily are specifically related to investing. And just to sort of, I guess, be humble about how much you know and just understand that there is just so much information out there um, and you're never going to be able to basically put the and the entirety of an investing strategy or the answer to stock market investing or 
like the the essential market knowledge into a book or into a documentary or into an article like it's just not going to happen i'm not quite sure how this is actually a myth though like i don't agree that it's a myth that a little knowledge is better than none because mm-hmm. to me like learning is incremental like you don't you don't suddenly know nothing and then you know everything like yeah. you, you gradually develop um knowledge over time of something so yeah i i don't agree with this one that it's a myth that a little bit little knowledge I, is better than none i think i see I, where it's coming from i think that um there's a there's a point of knowledge where yeah. you're in a lot of danger if you're not aware that you don't have enough yeah um and unfortunately i think this is where a lot of people who invest and learn about investing through YouTube and through the internet are going to run into a fair bit of trouble mm-hmm. um, because just by when you you just got to think about and you know this better than sort of anyone is that when you're making videos about anything on YouTube you one you're obviously thinking about what you want to provide to the viewers and whatnot but you also want to think about how the algorithms go into receive the video and all this stuff so you're going to be producing videos that are about 10 minutes long and you're going to make them catchy and you're like sort of make them the hot topics and so so that the video does well yeah but you're also you're also not perfect either no your your strategies and stuff that the people that are on youtube generally haven't worked everything out themselves no but you have um, to like present my, yourself as if you have. Well, if you're going to be um, sort of pulling in more viewers, then yes, you have to say, I know everything about the stock market because no one wants to sort of watch someone. Well, very few people want to watch someone that's a little bit iffy Yeah. on their strategy. Yeah. Like you want high conviction and you want... I mean, this even just or sort of extends to the current state of the world is that we get very culty about things. Um, and so we want a group and we want to find someone who's very passionate about what they're t- teaching, I guess. And you want to fall into a group that you can measure up yourself against. Um, and that's why like current uh, investing uh, or current value investing that's popular online is so um like there's sort of a checklist because you Mm -hmm. can measure yourself up against the checklist you can also use it to measure other people up against and so it's just yeah it's when this says that a little knowledge is better than none um i almost would agree just because yeah, from that standpoint like a little knowledge if you think like if you go and read an article on this is all you need to know to invest and it sounds very convincing and it sort of gives you an idea and it gives you a, a checklist that you can go and like use when you're selecting your stocks and you think you've got it sorted i think that's more dangerous than having no knowledge because no knowledge probably means you're not going to invest 
mm-hmm. um, and you're, then you're not going to lose your money. Um, yeah. But yeah, I I do agree with your point that you made before, where like obviously you're gonna you've got to start somewhere and you're going to incrementally get knowledge. But I think you definitely need to if you're going to be actively investing in stocks and trying to pick companies and doing all that, you need to sort of educate yourself to a a fair degree. Yep. And to continue educating yourself as well. Like the, the attitude needs to be that, I guess the attitude that a little knowledge is better than none, but more knowledge is even better would probably be the good attitude to have is just like consistently learn things that you didn't already know yeah because it's, the, it's, it's not only the fact that you haven't learned everything but it's also the the amount that the market's actually changing as well yeah um and like it, it's not just about your investing strategy or style or whatever it might be it, it's about um news in the markets as well like you have to you have to stay updated yeah, that's um, my challenge at the moment, staying yeah. up to date with news. Because I've been trying, like, I've been a very concerted effort over the last sort of month or so of learning as much as I can from uh, books. And so, like, I've struggled to keep up to date with all the news, as, like, because, like, there's just 24 hours in a day. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but um, have you seen the new Bill Gates doc- documentary or miniseries on Netflix? No, I haven't, but that um, makes it, me want to watch it. It came out on Friday. Um, I think it's called Inside Bill's Brain. And it's, it's essentially about him and how he thinks and how he's running his charity. And, That's um, what I'll be doing tonight. Yeah, I want to watch another episode. Uh, I watched the first episode yesterday. And Bill Gates has turned into a bit of a, bit of a role model for me recently. Yeah. Um, I've read like almost every blog post he's made. Um and he's just, he's such an intelligent person. But even he walks around, like his personal assistant basically keeps, he's got this like, you know, the Woolworths, um, like the, the shopping bags, not the plastic ones, the like green ones that you can buy. Um, he's basically got one of those at all times with him or his assistant brings it with him that gets refreshed, I think she said weekly. And it's got like 10 books in it. Oh, that's like, cool. Yeah, like he just carries like essentially 10 books around with him and he reads them like weekly and it gets refreshed weekly. Yeah. So him, one of probably the most knowledgeable people in the world is still consistently learning as much as he possibly can all the time, every day. Mm. And it was a, it was a massive sort of... Uh, focus of the first episode of how he goes and he seeks out knowledge all the time yeah you have to enjoy it though that's the important point yeah like, don't be don't be sort of going through the motions and and sort of they call it grinding don't don't be grinding like enjoy enjoy what you're doing yeah enjoy what you're reading yeah otherwise you're gonna, read... you're gonna stop eventually yeah i think it's important to read things that you you want to learn about um, and that you want to read about. And if that's investing, then that's investing. If that's not like I've 
was reading about Russia this week and like to go and read about Russia. And like I read um, last weekend, I read To Kill a Mockingbird because I just felt like reading like a classic fiction story. So I read that. Um, so yeah, I th- like it's important to read what you're interested in reading, but also just give things a chance because I think that in the first month or so of trying to just absorb a lot of knowledge all the time, it's going to be tiring and it's not going to, not going to enjoy it that much. Mm-hmm. But once you get over that first sort of hurdle, it gets much, much better. And you start like, I've got a literally a stack of uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books on the table at the moment that I want to read. <laughs> I just pick them up and like I read them. From the library? Yeah. Yeah. You got, um, what is it, four weeks? I think my library is three weeks, but I've been reading the books yeah. in about three days, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's right, yeah. On, right on schedule then. Yeah. To finish them all. Yeah, so I've got a um, yeah a bunch of books there and I just, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying reading a lot. Um, but yeah, I think if you want to learn through podcasts, there are a ton of podcasts out there with a lot of good knowledge. Um, and YouTube also has good stuff. Just be aware of the medium that you're reading and what the inherent biases in that medium are. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you're reading a book, you have to understand that there's publishers standing between the author and you. Um, so a good example of that is Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, that he didn't go and write a book with his 12 Rules for Life. A publisher approached him and asked him if he wanted to write a book. And he said, well, yeah, um, and I've got like, I think he posted something on Cora at one point with a bunch of rules for life. And he said, well, I could probably adapt this into a book. Um, and so you've got to understand the publishing process so that you can sort of guard against the biases that get built into that. And and the same thing on YouTube, there's the algorithm that makes certain videos be more popular, which is why people will make those certain videos. um, And just just being aware of that. They're the ones that get surfaced to you. So yeah. Although have you seen how crazy YouTube's algorithm has been going recently? Yeah, the, the old five-year-ago videos, seven-year-ago videos. <laughs> Literally, like there, yeah. there was an MKBHD video that, that suddenly got <laughs> recommended. Yeah. Um, and the comments on it were a shit show. Yeah. <laughs> like people um, like people, people commenting on it because everyone got it. All MKBHD video like watches got it. And it's one from literally like 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like fetus Marquez Brownlee, like recording on his yeah. laptop webcam. That's funny. And oh my god, it is—it's so funny. And people are like commenting as if he's made it now, and saying, "Keep going, buddy. I bet you'll make it one day and have ten million subscribers." <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Um. So, do you have any more points? Um, yeah, there's, there's still, there's still, I mean, we've obviously touched on this one. You need a lot of money, but like, I think the important thing that I would want to say in this one is you don't need a lot of money to start investing, but I think you need to have, um, certain finances in order. So I think you need to have 
um, a good system at least down. Um, obviously, high interest debt, like credit card debt, that's an average of 13%. You don't want to be really holding that. And you want to have a, uh, a uh, emergency fund as well. And I mean, that all that the amount that you have in the emergency fund will differ between each person depending upon your uh, circumstances and your style of work. So obviously, if you're a casual worker, you're going to have a larger emergency fund than someone who's on a contract. Or if you have a family, you're going to have a larger emergency fund than um, someone who doesn't have a family. So I think if you have those aspects down, you don't need a lot of money to invest. You just need to have your other finances in order before yep. investing. Yeah. Um, so that, that's very good advice. Just have everything else in order. Make sure that essentially the money that you're investing, you can lose all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if you were to lose all of it tomorrow, that it would be okay. And you wouldn't. And the reason I say that it's not because it's likely that you'll lose all of it tomorrow, but you're not going to access it tomorrow because it's going to take three or four days to transfer out of that investment account. And so if you need it tomorrow, you're not going to have it. And so just invest money. Effectively look at it, especially when you're starting out, look at it as money you're going to spend to learn because you're probably going to lose money at first. Uh, but just looking at look at it as like money that you're going to spend to learn and if you lost it all that's okay that's um, how i looked at it as well i was like i don't have much money like when i first started i was like i don't have much money now so if i lose money learning when i do come into money eventually when i start working because i started in uni when i do come into money at least then i've sort of learnt the lessons that yeah. i need to learn and then the other thing i th- I think is that your considerations for uh, like your considerations for investing change depending on the amount of money you have. So the big one when you have small amounts of money is the brokerage costs. Um, and so when you talk about averaging down a position, it's well your how much are you spending on brokerage each time you average down? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to come into account. Um, and when you've got larger amounts of money, then your sort of um, diversification becomes more realistic. Um, so you can actually start to think about those things. So you'd, I would say probably the minimum you'd want to in Australia with current brokerage rates I'd say the minimum you'd want to look at is maybe like $1,500 to start. I was going to say, yeah, 2000 Yeah, like 1500 so 2000 I'd want my, my buy and sell to equate to the most 1% of my yeah. trade. Yeah. And so I think like CMC markets, you can get about 10 bucks. Um, I think I do the- believe... I think FP markets just changed to yeah. no minimum. No minimum. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But I need there to would look be there would be a chess minimum of five hundred though. On yes, yes. If but you're buying I mean, 
ASX stocks, you'd have a chance I mean, to around 500. Sorry, I mean in terms of brokerage. So okay. if, you, if you buy in for 1,000, you're only spending 80 cents on your commission. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think they changed it. So yeah, um, yeah, there, there's options out there that yeah. can sort of change that. But FP Markets isn't isn't one for buying and holding. It, you have to pay interest. So yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, I'd say probably two grand is like probably a minimum to invest. Um, now the consideration there is you're probably only going to buy one, maybe two stocks. Um, but I would say, yeah, like probably if you're looking at a position with the current state of sort of brokerage amounts, you're probably looking at about a thousand dollar minimum position. Um, that's still relatively high. It's about t- like 2% brokerage on each side, but it's like it, it's doable. Um, and so I like I like to think about having an account of if you've got an account of three thousand dollars, you've got a three position account. If you've got an account of six thousand dollars, you've a six position account there. Um, and so that's probably a good way of, of thinking about it. So um, when you are investing, like invest probably in those blocks of thousands so that you're sort of you're not investing smaller amounts and getting killed on your brokerage. And then obviously once you get higher, there's a whole lot of different uh, considerations there. Yeah, of course. Um, one the one myth that I did want to touch on is that it takes too much time to invest. So it depends on your strategy. Um, some strategies don't require a whole lot of time in order to invest. Some passive investing requires no time. Um, but I think that the main the main point I want to make is that it takes time in order to actually develop your strategy in the first place. Yeah. Like you might, like I know myself, like I've trialed so many different um, things and read so many different um, strategies and stuff like that. And while the, the strategy you eventually come to say in 10 years time, if it takes you 10 years, that say it only takes you, I don't know, a few hours every six months or whatever it is, if that's a very simple strategy, but that's taken you 10 years to get to, you need to take into account that, that time as well. Yeah. Um, um, I think the other, the other thing is, do you want to invest to make money? Uh, like you're investing because you, you sort of know it's a good way to like so. build and protect <laughs> your wealth. Well, I mean, like, do you want yeah. to invest to make money or do you want to invest because you, enjoy the process of researching and making investments um, as like a hobby. Um, Obviously, you would be wanting to make money in both senses, but on one side, you're just wanting to make the money. And on the other side, you're actually enjoying the the whole process. I think you need to have a a portion of both. But if you just want to passively invest and just chuck money into the market over and over, understand the, the considerations there. Um, you can't just go into that blind, but um, yeah, just having like, if you want to, if you really enjoy having uh, 
like sitting down and reading about the markets and reading about different industries and how supply chains work and all this stuff, you're going to probably have a much more active uh, investment strategy and you're probably going to look at things a bit differently than someone who maybe wants to make some investments and look at it once a month um, and make like one investment a month. Like they're going to have a very different strategy because they're going to have sort of time during the month that they're maybe going to sit down and read and learn things. But if you want, if you want to be more active and buy more stocks, like you're just going to have more time that you're going to have to uh, learn about them. So the time is really up to you. But there is a there is a bit of a minimum of just keeping an eye on the market, even with passive investing. I know a lot of the information out there is just throw money every six months or every month into pass into a passive account and dollar cost average. And there's absolutely merit to that strategy. And it's something that I do and I advise other people to do. Not that, not that I'm a, a financial advisor, um, but that <laughs> I, yeah, um, disclaimer over this whole episode, obviously. Uh, but when people ask me what, like I said, like, look at this passive investing thing, but there are risks atta- attached to that, that I don't think get sort of talked about enough. Because what everyone likes to say is, oh, the market returns an average of 8% every year. And if you plug this in and you put $1,000 in every six months, look, you'll be a multimillionaire by the time you retire. Um, which is great. Um, it, like it, it's awesome. But also, if you retire in the year 2008, you're not a multimillionaire. You have $500,000 in your investment accounts because the market crashed by 50%. Um, so there is that significant risk of a ma- major market turndown, which destroys heart, essentially destroys like three courses. If you look at the compound interest, uh, like sort of scale, it destroys like three quarters of your investing horizon. If you were to take everything out on that down year. Um, and so that's just something something to take into account. So I think having a general idea of what's happening in the markets if you're investing like that. Um, and if you're not, people like hate saying that you should go to a, a financial planner or put something into a managed fund or something like that. But you have to remember that what you're doing is you're trading some of your returns for the time that you would have to put into managing that account. Yeah. And so if you go to a financial planner and you pay them a fee to manage your account for you, then you are paying them to do something that you don't want to do. And that's basically, uh, I would say, a failure, depending on what the fee is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people who, like that that's the other troubling thing that comes across from uh from what I see online is that you should never use a managed fund or you should never use a financial planner because look how the fees when you plug it into the compound interest calculator will ruin your your wealth in the future. And it's like, yes, okay, but there's, there's a service that they're providing you and you need to pay them for that service. Um, and that service is that they are managing your funds for you so that you don't have to. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, um, are there any there's others? Like, there's, two, there's two more that I want to touch on. Um, I know you'll have to say something about one of them. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> so, the, <laughs> so, so the, the first one we, we touched on last week, and that was sell when the market is in trouble. Um, and we talked about this with previously where some people who have contacted me have um, sort of sold out of the market, whether it be the market was down too much and they got worried or the news headlines sort of caused them to get out of the market. Um, and I think that for this one, like I said on the, the previous week, you need to sell individual stocks as they sort of um, deteriorate as opposed to the market deteriorating and selling your whole portfolio at once. Um, and that just comes down to individual management. And of course, if you're doing the passive investing route, then you're not selling when the market's in trouble. You're, you're just dollar cost averaging. Um, and if you're lucky enough to get the, uh, the bottom of the market where you've dollar cost average, then that's good. But if you don't, well, you know, yeah, that's That's just part of the strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the look, this this again, it comes back to what we've spoken to over the whole episode and that just have an like general idea of what's happening in the market, understand why the market's in trouble. It might make sense for you to if you're holding a bunch of bank stocks and it's 2008, well, you're probably going to want to sell your bank stocks. Um, like there's just unless you're an expert, you're probably not going to know which banks are going to go bust and which are going to get saved. Um, and so it's probably a good idea to sell your bank stocks and just ride it out and wait a little bit. Um, because, the, again, this comes down to looking at your situation and determining what is the safest path for you and how much risk you want to take. Now, and what what are your opportunity costs? Like if you're selling out of, Goldman Sachs in 2008, what's the the risk that you're taking is that Goldman Sachs gets saved and it suddenly rockets up before you can buy in again. And you just take that risk against the risk that, the, that Goldman Sachs doesn't get saved and it goes to zero and goes bust. And you, you, you just have to weigh up those risks and if it's Goldman Sachs, well, you and you held the stocks, you did pretty well. If it was Lehman Brothers and you hold the stocks, you did pretty badly. Like, and that, that just comes down to understanding the market and having an idea of the market. Um, uh, so I think next- the just last little point on that is that I am uncomfortable with hard and fast rules, which a lot of these things are basically, which is why they're myths. Like hard and fast rules just they can't account for every single situation. And so when you see a hard and fast rule like that, like don't buy a company that has over like a debt to equity ratio over 0.5. Okay, like, but what about this company that's done really well and has a debt to equity ratio of over 0.5? Like it can't cover every situation. Yeah. Oh. But again, that plays into the strategy. So. It plays into the strategy. And also when you see a hard and fast rule, I don't, I, like, don't just say, oh, no, can't read anything from there again because there's it's like a rule that they've written down. Understand what the rule is, the point why they're writing down that rule, why they follow that rule, and add it to your toolbox. Yeah. 
I think, can't, I think it can't the, hurt. Yeah, I think the a lot of the reasons why people have rules is to sort of just keep themselves in check. Like they don't want to do anything silly um, when they know that they can sort of get a certain return with a certain rule. Um, they're going to miss opportunities, of course, but they're going to stop um, stop themselves when they they want to actually purchase that stock that does have a deck of equity over 0.5, but does does actually go down the gurgler. So, yeah, yeah. Um, last one. This is kind of, it feels like I'm just about to let a guard dog off the leash. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just holding him back, you know. <laughs> um, so, the, the last myth is that um, high returns equals high risk. <laughs> and, and basically, they were pointing to Warren Buffett as an example that you can achieve high returns with low risk. <laughs> are you now, ready obviously <laughs> all right you go first <laughs> i'll just say briefly i'll just say briefly like i don't i don't agree with this obviously yeah um i think that if if you say look at something and you see a potential high return with a relatively low risk i think you're probably missing the component that's actually risky and it just looks as though it's a low risk opportunity to de- develop those high returns. And, you know, maybe, maybe you, um, occasionally get those high returns. So you think you're, you're picking low risk opportunities, but eventually, eventually I think you're going to wipe yourself out, um, by sort of doing that sort of stuff. One, one example is, um, just, it's not with a particular stock, but a strategy, say if you have one you buy and hold one stock. Well, yes, if you buy the most speculative stock and it's a, a biotech and it, it goes up 200% in um, a matter of weeks, well then, yes, of course, you've you've achieved a, a high return and you may have perceived it as low risk, but you may be missing the high risk component. Um, yeah. And... Yes, you've generated returns for many, many years. Like you don't have to invest in the stock market after that. Um, but if you keep proceeding with that strategy, thinking that it's low risk, eventually you're not going to get those high returns and you're going to get wiped out. Uh, and that's and that's where the risk is. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all I really want to say on that one. So I think... The, there's a couple of parts to to my thoughts on this, and just to preface this, um, I am studying finance at university, which is very much uh, the finance degree. When you study it at university, is very much about risk and managing risk, um, especially when you get to the later stages of the course. Once you've learned the fundamentals, um, last uh, term I took. Um, risk management, so risk management through uh, derivatives. This term I'm taking interest rate risk management. Uh, so it, act from an academic standpoint, the the study of finance is all about risk, and I think that there, I, I get where this um, is coming from, this uh, myth in that high returns equals high risk. 
um, or that where, where people say that, look at Warren Buffett, he's invested in low risk companies um, and he's made very, very high returns or that he's made very high returns with very few down years. So therefore he must like not be taking on a whole lot of risk. I think that the, the thing to understand here is that risk for each individual investor is different. Um, and an easy example of this is say uh, you go and you're in Australia and you invest in stocks in the US. You expose yourself to uh, foreign exchange risk and you ex expose yourself uh, sort of related to the foreign exchange risk. You expose yourself to interest rate risk. Um, of both of your countries, so Australia and the US. Uh, whereas someone in the US investing in US stocks doesn't expose themselves to that. So you can't say that a stock is risky or not risky, absolutely, because it depends where you're investing from, for, for one thing. And it also depends on what are your liquidity requirements, what are like all sorts of things, there's a whole range of risks. Um, and so risk isn't just like one thing and one of the uh, sort of fallacies or misconceptions that get seen is that risk is risk equals volatility um, and volatility is a component of risk um, what we call price risk um, but it's not all of risk um, and so when you look at someone like Warren Buffett, he had quite low volatility in his returns over the years, and he made and he did very very well. Um, but there were risks that he was exposed to, um, specifically in he was exposed effectively to a sector, and that sector was insurance, um, and. Because he was effectively, for at least the latter stages of his career, when Berkshire Hathaway became his investment vehicle, he was effectively using the insurance float to invest and make his returns, um, which is a type of leverage. Um, and that leverage could have been called in if there were like if there was massive natural disasters or uh, like something crazy happened like Canada decided to bomb the US or something um, Warren Buffett would have been wiped out um, and so there were risks that you don't see that Buffett took on um, and he was rewarded for those risks now in I suppose in academia and in like Markowitz portfolio theory and stuff, there is a general rule that the higher the risk you take on, the higher the return or the higher the average return. But again, you're talking in averages. And um, when you're talking in averages, you're essentially deleting information. Um, and so there are certainly a, a range of opportunities where a range of examples where you may take on a certain level of risk and get a much higher return or a much lower return. 
than is at, like sort of acceptable for that level of risk that you take on. Um, and it's, it's just uh, basically, uh, in general, if you're investing in higher risk stocks, there there is a higher... I mean, I, it's hard to put this in, into words, I guess, but like if you invest in a spec stock, if it goes up, it's going to go up a lot. And if it goes down, it's going to go down a lot. Um, and that's just kind of like how how it works. Um, I guess the other it, example... I was yeah? just going to say, like it, it's like there are small opportunities in the market where... Um, you can achieve, I wouldn't say a high return, you can achieve a return with a relatively low risk or very like essentially nothing, like arbitrage opportunities and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but not they're not always uh, available to the average investor. Yeah. Like I think I think that high 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 risk equals high returns over the average of a strategy for the average investor, but there's there was a good example that you pointed out, I think, last week or two weeks ago, and that was, um, I think it was Warren Buffett and was it Lehman Brothers? Yeah, uh, just uh, continue and I'll... Um, I, I can't remember the exact details, but I think they, he offered up, it was throughout the 2008 financial crisis and he essentially offered, um, offered the money, I think it was like 100, Oh uh, yeah, million. I think this may have been something I sent to you. Yeah, it was. Um, and, I think um, that was uh, not Lehman Brothers. It was uh, Solomon Brothers. Solomon, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Um, I'll quickly and, just pull it up uh, while you talk. Yeah, no worries. And he essentially achieved a return overnight, a risk-free return overnight of eighteen uh, percent. I think yeah. that was the number. Yeah, and. Like there are small opportunities out there in the market, but these sorts of opportunities aren't obviously available to every investor. It's it's only available to a select few. Yeah. Um, but I guess even with like, I'm just thinking with like arbitrage opportunities, as while there not be, while there's not risk in, sort of the trade itself, maybe there's risk in the the setup of your equipment and then eventually when you come to um i don't know the opportunity maybe maybe it doesn't exist and you've you've already put down and outlaid all this capital for all this equipment and um your arbitrage opportunity um through i don't know legislation or something now longer no no longer exists yeah um i don't know i think there's small pockets but I just don't think low return, high re- sorry, low risk equals high returns is achievable at all um, over the long term. That yeah. people are saying that uh, was achieved by Warren Buffett. Yeah, I think Warren Buffett is. I mean, he's been a very successful investor, but he's also been grabbed onto the media in a certain way. And he, to a large extent, has played himself to the media that way. 
um, because it means essentially what he's done. I mean, he has his office in in Omaha, and he treats he like basically is known as the Oracle from Omaha, and he's completely separate to Wall Street and everybody's mind and in the government's mind. And I mean, it's it's just brilliant business sense, really. That he didn't get tied in with Wall Street, uh, like quote unquote. Uh, but he was basically a Wall Street guy, and there's numerous examples like the Solomon brother. He financed something like nine hundred million or eight hundred million worth of Solomon Brothers uh, shares, or no, he bought a bond, a convertible bond. That mm, for them to do something and made like 18% overnight, and that's just like an out and out uh, Wall Street deal. It's not a conservative, low risk value play that everybody likes to think Warren Buffett only does. I and mean, he was doing crazy Wall Street financings, and it's like relatively well known. Like people watch the airport at Berkshire during sort of big mergers where the financing is in question and people watch not the Berkshire airport sorry the um I don't know which city he lives near um but the airport near here and they watch for the jets coming in um and when they because the jets come in after they've called Buffett and Buffett agrees to take a meeting um and so yeah I think that the idea that um high returns equals or the the idea that you can take low risk and make high returns is just crap it's not it's not true at all um, and if someone is out there saying that they can guarantee you low returns that or low low risk and high returns or guarantee <laughs> returns over i can sell them that <laughs> yeah like i mean that's just that's a page out of wolf of wall street so um, yeah, d- don't go down that route. But um, look, risk risk is a, a very difficult thing and I don't fully understand risk. And there is a whole, um, whole area of study, uh, actuarial science, which is all about risk. And actuaries get paid a lot of money. And if you, um, I think it was episode 10, it was episode 10 yeah, we spoke to MJ. Um, he's an actuary in South Africa, and uh, if you want to listen to a conversation about risk, go and listen to that, and go and watch his YouTube channel because it's a crazy, um, it's a crazy field and a very interesting field, um, and people get paid a lot of money to manage risk. So, yeah, it's not something that can be summed up super easily. And that's that's a perfect example too. It's like if they're if there was no like risk, then why are the banks paying people to mitigate risk? Like, why are they why are people managing risk if if it's not a thing? Yeah, it's so. it's just like it's it's a massive massive component of everything, um, and it's not just like financial risk like that. And I think that's where the the fallacy comes in, is that like your sort of price risk, you can maybe minimize your price risk and still have high returns but there are other risks built in so the perfect example of that is arbitrage 
where you're not going to have any price risk just by virtue of it being arbitrage. But there are a huge number of risks built in. Uh, and a lot of those risks are like your technology failing or uh, yeah, exactly. something like slightly being wrong that you don't execute the trade. Um, and that's being explored a lot in uh, cryptocurrency at the moment. Um, so there's been a few episodes recently on chat with traders with uh, sort of leading cryptocurrency traders and market makers um, and talking about those risks. And so you can get a, a good understanding of that if you go and listen to those episodes. Um, so just to finish off, was there anything uh, interesting that you read or watched or anything this week that you would recommend? Um, there was... Uh... There was something that was, um, it was just a little bit of interesting news, actually. It was just on uh, Amazon and um, their purchasing of the 100,000, or oh, looking to purchase 100,000 uh, electric delivery vans. Oh, really? From Rivian. Um, oh. So, it's one of the first big companies to sort of start to, to move towards electrification and... Um, yep he came out and sort of openly stated that, you know, that's, that's one of their goals. Um, so I, I think that's, that's a really cool piece of news because it shows that, um, large companies are interested in electrifying their fleet, but also a potential partnership or Amazon buying out Rivian in the future. Um, that that could be uh, very interesting as well, and if they actually go down that path of um, autonomous vehicles and whatnot, you know that we have uh, electric buses in Sydney now. Yeah, I heard there was a couple. Yeah, I saw one the other day. Um, uh, only because people were comparing China to the US and then yeah. Australia. Yeah. I think China has something like 400,000 electric buses. Yeah. F that's That was a number that I saw. I don't think that's... Seems like a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, China's a big place, so... It is. But, yeah, we have we have a few here now. And um, I saw one the other day. Um, it seems crazy that with electric cars, that seem to be so difficult to get out there and popular that that there's a company out there able to make a bus that actually yeah, it's, works it's um, 400 400,000 electric buses in wow yeah. yeah so yeah i saw i saw one drive past me the other day and it was crazy quiet um yeah that, that was pretty cool um i can imagine like that would be beyond just the pollution uh like effects of having electric buses, the noise factor that it would cut out of the cities would be oh, insane. Those buses I, are so loud. It'd be it'd be beautiful to yeah. to sort of have it just for noise and pollution. It'd be so nice. Yeah, I'm keen to. I might. Uh, I know which route one of the electric buses is on, so I'm keen to go like for a ride on one and just like see what yeah. it's like inside. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, other than that, uh, I spoke about the future is history. That's a book I read this week, um, mm -hmm. which was, it was 
it's a long book. It's very dense. It's not like sort of a, if it's your first exposure to Russian history, it's not the right place to start. Um, but it, it's interesting. If you do want to get into a bit of Russian history, there's a cool Netflix series called The Last Stars, um, which is one of those interesting, like it's part dramatized and then part documentary. Um, mm-hmm. So rather than showing real images of of things like the Vietnam War one, like shows all the real images and footage, um, they have actors come in and play the different parts. And so you'll have like a, a 10 minute section of them actually acting out what happened. And then you have the historians talking about it as well. Um, and I think that's like five or six episodes. So I'm making my way through that. That's pretty cool. Um, the other thing I read earlier on this week was Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, mm-hmm. which was about AI. Um, and that was a, f- a really fascinating book. Um, it started out talking about a lot of the, the sort of AI topics that you see spoken about on the internet. Uh, so talking about what AI can do basics of how AI works, the dangers of like AI breakouts and whatnot. But then it also started talking about some sort of historical theorizing about AI and the future of the human race and what we could possibly, what basically physicists have said might be possible if we had better engineering capacity or uh, better but essentially it was better engineering capacity um, and sort of what human life could look like. And he, he was making the argument that AI could be hugely beneficial in that sense because we know some of these things should theoretically be possible. So we could set AI on the task of designing those things um, and therefore extending human life that way. Um, and like some of the things was like... Uh, energy efficiency um and he was talking about like some of the crazy numbers like how low energy efficiency like basically everything is apart from like the core of the sun and ai may if we were able to harness ai in a safe and practical way we could uh like sort of harness those higher energy efficiency uh um sort of uh methods and procedures and whatnot and so it was a very interesting book not just that though like you you have a like i learned about in my final year of university it was um how they're sort of treating as as uh growing older as as a disease as opposed just to an inevitable um sort of outcome that you die um and sort of the seven the seven components that they need to work through in order to stop people aging. Um, I thought that was really interesting and it's something that you could definitely get AI onto to sort of solve the final few. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very interesting. And obviously they spoke about a lot of things like, oh, well, what if we uploaded our brains to the cloud and we were like cybernetic and uh, like all this sort of like all that sort of cool sci-fi stuff. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a very interesting book. Um, so, and it wasn't very long. It's maybe 300, 400 pages. So um, it's like a very readable book. So I'd, I'd recommend going out and reading that if, you, if you're if you interested in that sort of a topic. 
And I know there's one by Nick Bostrom as well uh, called Intelligence or something, which is on my list. Um, but other than that, we've been going for two hours. We were planning on doing a shorter one, but that was <laughs> <laughs> it was not a, not a shorter one today. No, no, um, that's fine. But it is, have... uh, sorry. Are you are you busy later on today, or uh, do you have much planned? Probably, like I've got to do my podcast, and I've got a bit of a uh, uni work to do as well tonight. So yeah, very um, good. Should get moving. Um, so, are you are you watching out for anything this week in the market in particular? Um, not anything in particular. Um, I sort of want to see how the. I'm I'm really looking at how the market reacts to that sort of three thousand level because I've been just waiting for it to push through. I want to see how it reacts. Yeah. As we push through. Yeah, because um, it's eight points short now. So. Yeah. So. It's not going to take much to get through, and I, I really feel it's going to blow through it. But um, maybe this week's the week. Who knows? Yep. Or um, maybe we slide into a <laughs> a recession. <laughs> yeah. Um, who knows? Yeah. I think I'm going to be what I'm going to be watching oil this week again. Yeah. I just want to see now that we know what happened, um, and I think Brexit is again. I mean Brexit still happening um but i think brexit is like coming to a bit of a a sharp point now i think there's about two weeks before the recess and then after that they're basically going to have like a week to if they want to do anything to do it um so uh yeah brexit is like coming like down to the pointy end now so i'm gonna be watching that yeah that'll be good cool all right all right good episode